welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. And welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. I am Chip Patterson. That is Barton Simmons. We are back here and you have landed at another edition of Around the World. We've been going all around the world, Barton. Um, we've got, we are going to be checking in from Georgia with Rusty Mansell. We are going to be checking in from South Carolina with J.C. Sherbert. And we are going to be going out to the West Coast where we will be checking in with Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Network. We're going to talk USC Stanford. Uh, one of the, that's, that's one of the other great uh, early conference games that we've got here on this schedule. One of the really fun ones, but uh, we also go around to the rest of the Pac-12. Barton, uh, I I am tr- – are you in favor of these early uh, conference matchups? <laughs> What's the alternative? Well, all right, so if uh, Oregon you were, versus Portland State? Well, if you were, if you were a head coach, would you want to have this? Because there's there's two ways that it goes. Either you get the win and it gives you a game up on uh, the competition, particularly if it's a division competition. You take the loss. All of a sudden, you're setting yourself back, You know, digging yourself a hole like Chip Patterson going 4-17 and 17 against the spread in the CBS expert picks. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess as a coach, I'd be a little reluctant for the big early season matchups because I don't know. I'd just be nervous about getting things rolling. And, and even if you, you know, even if you lose a big non-conference matchup uh, like Washington did, uh, you have time to, to make that up in the long run. So I guess I don't know from a coaching perspective, I would maybe be a little hesitant. But from a fan's perspective, it is pretty cool that we're getting like what could essentially be the you know the east semifinal game or the what what I guess the the east conference final um the east division final maybe in in this South Carolina Georgia matchup so I um and yeah so I I I think it's 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 fun from a fan perspective I, I think that it we always get these results and I mean how often all, the, it is a guarantee that all of these teams are going to be a different team at the end of November and certainly in the bowl game than they are here in the second weekend of September. The question is whether it's going to be better or worse, right? Like there's there's going to be the team that, that wins in one of these games, but by the end of the year, that result has proven to be wrong. But then there's going to be uh, also the opposite, that this sort of sh- separates everyone. I uh, I'm I will say that I'm a fan. There you go. There's the ruling. Yeah. We can, we can wrap it up. We can go to the podcast. Uh, all right, you mentioned that we are going to be getting to South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, Barton, do you think that the SEC East is uh, in a position right now where it could be making the arguments uh, along with not only the SEC West, but the Big Ten East, uh, with the Pac-12 North, with the ACC Atlantic, and... Uh, like I think the value of winning the SEC East has changed rapidly from yeah. where Jim McElwain's Florida teams it kind of felt like they were backing into the SEC East titles. It feels like that's changing. Yeah, I think you know you said it's changed rapidly. Uh, as you said that, I thought you were going to say dramatically, and I think rapidly is a better choice of words. Like I think that's right, and that it's not necessarily 
dramatically different right now in the East than it was a couple of years ago, but it feels like it's moving very quickly. And it feels like we are like the, the East gets significantly better every year. And, and, and really, I guess what we're talking about is Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. And look, we're a long way away from, from saying Tennessee's getting rapidly better. Uh, we've we've I mean we we watched the game. Uh, we've had, and there's been a lot of of Tennessee's on the right track moments over the last decade. Right. Uh, that have uh, you know so we should we should not have make any grand proclamations. But I think like the thing that and I wrote about this today for CBS is like what's interesting to me is how it's you know the SEC is sort of it's sort of taking its medicine and saying like. Or the sorry, the SEC East is sort of taking his medicine and saying, you know, we're not gonna, we're gonna stop trying to do this our own way. Like there's a blueprint in this conference that works. Nick Saban's got it, and we're not gonna half-ass it. We're not gonna hire his his offensive coordinator that, uh, you know, that that drove the bus into the national championship game with all that defensive talent. We're not gonna hire a position coach, you know, that that worked under him at. LSU and then had a sub 500 record at La Tech. Like we're we're gonna hire the the first lieutenants. We're gonna hire the defensive coordinators that have won national titles with them. And and I think what's what's interesting and like this is something that probably not a lot of people realize is is it's not just the the coaches. It's not it's it's like the whole the whole I mean, personnel mentality. Like you, you're talking type, you're talking about Sabinization. Sabinization. And that means sabinization of not just the culture, but sabinization of the roster, of the personnel, of the type of guys you're recruiting. Um, and and I think it. What's interesting to me is like if you look at Alabama, I'm sorry, if you look at Tennessee, if you look at Georgia, if you look at Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, rather. Sorry, all three of those programs, their directors of player personnel for all three of those programs were undergraduate recruiting assistants at Alabama under Nick Saban. Wow. And they're sort of off in this little coaching tree and Will Muschamp and Jeremy Pruitt um, and and Kirby Smart have all sort of like come up with these guys in a way and and mentored these guys or worked alongside these guys and they've all seen how this process works, like how this the the talent evaluation and identification and and the development all works, and so they're all. It's a, it's just very. It's a it's an aligned vision, and they've all, in some ways, obviously there's differences in each one of those programs, but in some ways, like they're probably all, are thinking, in the same way, all three of those programs are. And now you got Will uh, Dan Mullen over there at Florida, too, who is sort of look. He's he's he the odd been, one out. He is, but he's still he's still an SEC West guy, and right, he still right, brings right. that like he's been. The Urban Meyer guy and the spread guy and the offensive guy to their defensive guy. He's that sort of foil. He brings like the texture uh, to that conference. And um, and so now he comes to Florida, and I don't think anyone doubts he's going to be able to have some level sure. of success there. But it's just I think it's it's just fascinating how quickly the East is 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 becoming reflective of the West. And does that mean success? I don't know, but I, I suspect it does. That does like, I don't know what, what success means, but I think it, I suspect it means the SEC East is going to get a lot better a lot quicker, and I think the SEC East is going to get – I know the SEC East is going to get more physical 
more quickly. I, um, and and that will be interesting to see how the the landscape of the of the conference and how the dynamics start to shift in that regard. Do you think that we came out of week one overreacting to the SEC West going seven and zero? Big win, big wins against uh, conference championship caliber teams for Auburn and LSU. Uh, you know, we already had kind of penciled Mississippi State into this spot. I I wonder if there's a there's a little bit of a correction coming over the course of the season. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think in some ways, like the SEC has cycled down as a conference, and primarily that's because of the East has been just pretty bad at times over the last several years. I don't. I'm not convinced that the West is about to take a dip just because the East is about to to come up a little bit. I still think. I mean, look, I, I am fascinated by Kansas State, Mississippi State, because I think Joe Moorhead. I still think there's a chance that guy is like one of those really really special hires this off season. And if he can keep Mississippi State rolling, then that you know, Bama's going to be Bam. I think Auburn's going to be Auburn, and and LSU's to a degree, I think probably is going to be LSU. Well, so, I, I think we're just going to be – we are going to judge the SEC West based on three teams, Texas A&M, LSU, and Mississippi State. And if, like, two out of the three are in that nine-win range, eight-win range, it's going to look like a really good conference. If we've got two out of the three floating down near seven and five at the end of the year, then we're going to be talking about uh, programs or teams that have underperformed. Well, let's be real. Like, I think – the reason the SEC was worse than it's been in a while is it made bad coaching hires across the board. I think there was a there was a collection of bad coaching hires, and there's no way to make any you know declarations on how this cycle of hires went. But my gut is that the SEC has really good coaches again. And it also has quarterbacks. That's another thing. Is this is this year? It does this year yeah. the quarterbacks are good? And in a little bit last year, that was where we could see the trending. But this year, it's it is it's better quarterbacks in the ACC. It's better quarterbacks in the Big Ten. Man, right now it might be better quarterbacks than the Big Twelve. Who has a bad quarterback in the SEC? Kentucky has a it doesn't have a good quarterback situation. But that's about it. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's and that's the polar opposite of what it was. Uh, just. A few years ago. Uh, now, you know, look, Florida's got something to prove in that regard. LSU, you know, look, they they, they got to prove something as well. Uh, so, you know, no no overreactions necessary. But, look, Ty Story had a pretty good week at Arkansas. Maybe they found a quarterback. Um, Kellen Mond, I got I, very few just uh, hapless situations at the quarterback position. And, and I think the coaches, coaches is, is objectively – improved and so that is a pretty good sign for the for the whole conference but we're gonna find out a lot this weekend we're gonna South Carolina, Georgia. we're gonna find out a lot this weekend uh barton when it when it comes to making hires uh as as we mentioned there's it you got to make a smart hire you got to be able to find the right coach who's going to be able to to fit your program and and the sec's reputation has been uh knocked a little bit because of some hires that were just not smart you know, did you know perhaps that there are job sites that send you tons of wrong resumes to sort through? Uh, that's that's not smart. You know what else isn't smart? Making the lottery a centerpiece of your retirement plan. No, no, no. That's not smart. 
But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7 sports to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and then it actively invites them to apply so that you get a qualified candidate fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7 sports. That's right. Make smart hires like they did at Mississippi State to go get Joe Moorhead, but make them for your company. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7 sports. Once again, ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7 sports. Barton, you ready to go around the world? Let's go around the world. Around the world, around the world. And now we land with South Carolina, with the Gamecocks, and we're not going to turn to anybody else in the world but J.C. Sherbert. Uh, you can find all of the action uh, over at the Big Spur, thebigspur.com. And, and I want to start with this, uh, J.C. What's the message board looking like? going into this week because I got to think that the South Carolina fans, this is about a fever pitch of a moment uh, with the Bulldogs coming to town on Saturday. Well, you know what's strange, guys, is um, whenever this ball game is early in the year, and traditionally it's usually the second week of the season, sometimes the third, um, it's one people do talk about all summer. That being said, this past summer, and I I don't know whether it's because they're battling for more recruits head-to-head or whether they're just, you know, Georgia was really, really good last year, and and so it's a big game. And there was more talk this summer about this game than I've ever seen during an offseason in covering South Carolina. I mean, usually they're going to talk about the whole year, talk about Clemson, but Georgia, South Carolina got more message board run this summer than, than any game with the Gamecocks I can remember. And it was really that way on both boards. So, um, obviously, this is one that uh, a lot of people are looking forward to. I think it's uh, it's an opportunity for Will Muschamp to get a big win. Um, and certainly, this is a game that, uh, regardless of how good the two teams are or not, it's one that uh, – both sides really, really want to win. So, I mean, you know, Georgia, I know Georgia has like seven rivals. Uh, <laughs> you know, South Carolina probably, I, I would say two, uh, Georgia being the second one after Clemson. So, um, still a big game, though. Should be a good one, 3.30 Saturday uh, over at williams Bryce. Stacey, we, we talked to Rusty this morning as well, and, and uh, I asked him what you could learn from Georgia and Austin P and, and not much, really, and and I know it's a little bit of a similar situation with, with South Carolina playing coastal. So before we get into sort of the specifics of the Georgia matchup, like is there any takeaways that you found from the Coastal Carolina win? Did, did you learn anything from, from what they showed? Any questions answered well, in week one? South Carolina's debuting a new offense, and you heard a lot about tempo over the summer. I think it was about 95 degrees in Columbia Saturday, and – Coastal runs sort of an option attack, so they didn't, they didn't really hit the gas as much as they could have with the tempo. But I learned I, I thought Brian McClendon did a really good job calling plays. You know, I think that he mixed it up. He kept Coastal sort of off balance. Um, 
it's night and day compared to what we've seen from the Gamecocks in that category the last two years. Um, really kind of look, you know, in the flow of things as a play caller. And, and, I, and I think anytime you have a guy that's doing it for the first time, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a topic of discussion. And, you know, play calling is always going to be a topic of discussion around South Carolina because of who coached there. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, that was a positive sign. Uh, I thought the running backs running a little harder this year, looking a step quicker, was positive. Um, you know, other than that, it, it is kind of hard to tell and certainly couldn't tell anything <laughs> with Georgia versus Austin P. So um, yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, when you look at those two games last week, that that's going to really be any sort of indicator as to how Saturday is going to go. I think All right, so go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to follow up on that with you know Brian McClendon, offensive coordinator, but but I've also talked to EJC and and look, there's a there's a Dan Warner element to this offense as well. I, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. what are your expectations for this unit heading into this season? And, and I mean, is obviously that's that's been the long sort of question that Will Muschamp has been just trying to answer every year. So like. Wh- do you think it's going to get answered this year? Is the offense going to look evolved, uh, you know, with with this staff? What what are your sort of expectations lie? Well, I mean, I have very high expectations for the offense. With with one caveat, they have to stay healthy. Um, you look at their starting eleven, and you know they'll they'll mix like an extra receiver, an extra tight end in there sometimes. So you know, maybe starting twelve or whatever. Yeah, you have four seniors on the offensive line. Uh, the fifth guy is a guy named Sedarius Hutcherson, who they think is going to play in the NFL, who may be their best offensive lineman. Um, Debo Samuel, Brian Edwards, and Shai Smith at receiver. Um, or Trey Smith right behind him. Josh Van right behind him. Uh, tied in, you got a Casey Crosby that was their leading touchdown receiver two years ago. Uh, and then Jake Bentley at quarterback. Um, and Rico Dowdle and Tyson Williams at running back along with A.J. Turner. So you've got guys uh, that can make things happen offensively. I think this unit at South Carolina, Will Muschamp, is better than any of the units he had at Florida and certainly the best he's had at South Carolina. So he's got players. Um, you know, but if you start digging into, you know, maybe they get hurt and maybe they lose some guys again. Um, certainly Debo Samuel staying healthy is very, very important, but – you know, Shy Smith and Brian Edwards have had bumps and bruises along the way, too. Um, you know, they lined up against Clemson last year. They didn't have Debo Samuel. They didn't have Shy Smith. And then A.J. Turner went out like the third series of the game. Those are their three fastest players, and you're playing Clemson. Right. So you go from being a long shot to basically having no chance to move it because you just don't have anybody to run with those guys. Mm-hmm. So I think um, – I think staying healthy is a key, guys. But but I think if they can if they can stay healthy, uh, this offense has a chance to be really, really good, really good. JC, as I've been uh, trying to put together my my plans, my expectations, uh, sort of where uh, I think the Gamecocks can be or where they should be, there has been uh, a built in assumption on my part, and one that may make me look like an ass. But uh, I believe that there is some 
some inherent development that is going to continue on the defensive side of the ball just with Will Muschamp being a really good football coach, particularly in coaching the defensive side of the ball. Uh, you've been much closer to the program and to these players than I have. Uh, is is that an assumption that is a fair to make? Because when you're looking at, at the depth chart, you know, you're, you're seeing these players and these names where I'm expecting that by week four, I'm going to know a lot more of them than you are going into the year. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, I don't want to say it's a no-name defense, but, you know, Barton and I have talked about this. Gamecocks kind of hang out in that high three-star, low four-star range in terms of the bulk of their recruits. Um, I do think they have some guys that they've kind of out-evaluated everybody on. But, you know, you, you look at a guy like Kingsley and Igbarre, um, Jemias Williams, and they went into Georgia and beat mm-hmm. Georgia on those guys. So there are some guys that are the quote-unquote no-brainers. Uh, to your point about Will Muschamp at defense, and, and I started maybe because I've overanalyzed it or something, uh, I started thinking about this. I was like, well, you know, the defense, they may struggle. And, right. and, you know, I'm kind of talking to myself here. don't think I'm crazy or anything. And I was like, well, why? Well, because everybody's just saying, well, Will Muschamp's just a good football coach on that side of the ball. He'll get it, he'll get it straight. Well, you know, we just went through the Steve Spurrier era at South Carolina. Oh, the, the offense is going to be fine. Steve Spurrier's the coach, and sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it wasn't good at all. So you know, I I, uh, I have a lot of faith in Will Muschamp. I do think they have good players. And, and here's a stat for you. And this made me feel more positive about that side of the ball. When Will Muschamp's teams score over 20 points in a game, 20. Now that's not a big benchmark these days yeah. in college football. 20 points. He is 38 and eight as a head coach. Just got to get it done on offense. <laughs> I mean, thirty-eight and eight. I was like, "Wow, that's like a that's a big that's a that's a big record right there uh, to get twenty points in a game." So I, I think uh, his track record has shown that you know he he can indeed find a way to get it done defensively. But I I think they're gonna be one thing to look out for this weekend. DJ Wanham, who's one of their best uh, defensive linemen nursing an ankle injury. They think he's going to be able to play, but that's definitely something to watch. He plays the uh, the buck position, which was the position Dante Fowler played at Florida. Um, and so uh, right. if he's out, they're going to kind of have to mix and match and, and put some other guys out there. So what's your well, score for the game? Yeah. What am I looking for for the game? No, what's the what, score? What's, what's the score yeah, for the game? Yeah, get, let, yeah. What, what are your expectations? Like, I mean, <laughs> there, the, there's a fever pitch. You know, everybody. this is sort of the game of the weekend, and South Carolina's. this is their sort of chance to, to climb the, the ranks in the East. Do they have it in them? I mean, what, what's your expectation? I, I expect South Carolina, will. it'll be a fourth-quarter game. Uh, if you look at it, it's usually a fourth quarter game in Columbia. South Carolina's won four out of the last five. Uh, two years ago, uh, Kirby Smart brought the Bulldogs over. They won tw- by two touchdowns, but it was a little misleading because there was a uh, a uh, onside kick at the end that Georgia returned for a touchdown for the final margin. Other than that, you know, you look at two thousand and two. That was the year Georgia won a conference title with David Pollock and David Green. The final was 13-7, and Paul Pollock made a heroic play to win that one. You look at 04 when Georgia was ranked second in the country, uh, David Green's senior year. Georgia was down 16 nothing. had to rally for a 20-16 to win. Gamecocks fumbled inside the 10. 
08 Matt Stafford senior year they come in Carolina had just lost a road game to a, a good Vanderbilt team but Vanderbilt nonetheless and uh Georgia comes in there Gamecocks played them off their feet 14 to 7 they escape uh and then the Gamecocks won the next four so Columbia has not been an easy place for Georgia to go get a win that being said guys I felt the same way about Blacksburg Virginia and Clemson last year and we saw what happened in that ball game. Virginia Tech, good, not good enough. Clemson sort of rolled. Um, and, and I think that's in the mind of a lot of Gamecock fans. Because I think right now, you know, around the South Carolina program, they see Georgia, they see Clemson, and, and they think gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't think that Georgia was as dominant uh, as Clemson was during the regular season last year. So uh, we'll see ultimately what happens there. But uh, – I do expect it to be a fourth-quarter game. I expect there to be a lot of good moments, a lot of big plays on both sides of the ball. Um, If there's one thing you're always concerned about uh, when you look at Georgia, it's their run game. And, uh, man, I think they have a terrific offensive line. I really, really do. And and I think that it's probably one of the best units in the league this year. And so with that, you know, it's very likely or they're very capable of lining it up and controlling it. And uh, then it doesn't matter kind of how fast you're going on offense because – you can't get the ball. He is J.C. Sherbert. Check him out, thebigspur.com. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at J.C. Sherbert. J.C., great to catch up with you again, man. Appreciate it. Man, I appreciate it, guys. Y'all have a great day. Around the world, around the world. And now it's our pleasure to welcome to Around the World, Rusty Mansell of Dogs 24-7. Uh, Rusty, just a massive week. There've been. Uh, we're going to get into the game in particular, but I want to ask you a question about Kirby Smart. Because as Nick Saban and his response uh, to the the way that the the two quarterbacks, Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Hurts, and and certainly he got feisty with Maria Taylor in the interview, and it has become a talking point. I wanted to ask you because Kirby Smart, we got to see Justin Fields in the opener, and he has certainly had two very capable quarterbacks. How have you seen uh, a different or similar response in the way that Kirby Smart has handled his talented quarterback room as opposed to Nick Saban? Well, you look at it, and look, I, I mean, I don't really – we could talk the rest of the show about this, how that question was answered, and Barton will agree with me. There is zero quarterback controversy in Alabama, so we can end that discussion. There's zero because two is a freak. And you start talking about how Georgia's handled their situation. I think Kirby Smart has answered that question pretty good, saying, you know, we don't have a plan, but we're going to play two quarterbacks, and Jake Fromm is our starter. So I think he's handled that situation. You know, people want to know, do you have packages? How, you know, what do you go into this game? How are you going to play out Justin Fields? You know, a lot of people were asking last week, what's the plan? And he said, look, we don't have a plan. But, you know, we're going to play him, but Jake Fromm is our starter. And I think that's ended a lot of the controversy to where he doesn't have to face those type of questions. Look, Nick Saban is, is probably the greatest college football coach of all time. Sure. The way he has handled this situation has, has been terrible. I mean, it's been a just a disaster the way he's handled it. All he had to do was say Tua is our guy. Everybody in the country knows he is our guy, and we're going to play Jalen Hurts where we can use him to help us win football games. And that would have stopped all this. And uh, it's, it obviously has blown up into a different situation. But, uh, you know, I think Kirby Smart has handled it well. Jake Fromm is our guy. But, um, you know, without saying it, he basically said Justin Fields is too talented. We have got to find ways to use him to win football games. Rusty, what did you learn from, from Austin P? I mean, there's only – look, 
did you learn anything? Yeah. I guess is maybe the better question. I mean, can can we take anything from that game and and extrapolate it forward and and uh, and project it towards this South Carolina matchup? Obviously, very respected program, and 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 Bart, we're both you know big Will guys at Austin P. Uh, but you can't really take anything. I think what you can take away, Georgia, a little bit of Kirby Smart here. Nick Saban has kind of moved. Didn't release a depth chart. We didn't know who was going to start at corner. Who was going to start at star position? You know, you look at a true freshman, Tyson Campbell, who evidently won that job over uh, in preseason. Now, Tyree McGee is out for a while, but, um, you know, you look at Tyson Campbell versus Tyree McGee, who is a very tough South Georgia kid. I'm a huge fan of these South Georgia kids. They're producing right now. But Tyson Campbell is starting there. I thought Trey Hill coming in at left guard early in the early in the game was very telling. I mean, you look at Kendall Baker, who's a he's a guy started for a year and a half for Georgia. He started every game last year, I believe, at left guard, and all of a sudden the guy didn't come in until basically the third string. And I don't think Kendall Baker did anything wrong. I think Georgia just over recruited over him. And that tells you what Sam Pittman's doing. So no, you can't really take a ton away um, for a team like Austin P, I, I thought it was a class act, a great decision to shorten that fourth quarter. No need for that team to have any more injuries. They're going to be great in their conference. You know why they were there. Uh, so I thought it was a great move by Kirby Smart and, and Austin P staff to shorten that game to to hopefully uh, not have any more injuries. But can't take a whole lot away. I think who started and who played early is a takeaway for me. When you uh, when you look ahead to this this game this weekend in Columbia against South Carolina, you mentioned it as we were talking before we started recording. This this is a game that South Carolina fans have been pointing to for a long time, and and any uh, SEC fan, especially the Georgia and South Carolina fans, are going to know that this is this is going to be uh, dictating the SEC East title race for the rest of the season. So as you look at the Gamecocks, um, uh, you know, again, they played Coastal Carolina, only minimal amounts of Mm -hmm. information we could glean from them. What are you seeing there uh, that could present some problems for Georgia? Look, I think Jake Milley's a really good player. I'm a huge advocate of coaches' kids. Uh, You know, he's had some moments at times where he's, he's made some mistakes, but it doesn't mean I think people are too quick to judge development. And this guy's in his third year. Uh, you know, he's playing with Brian McClendon now as offense coordinator. He has his dad there. He's taught him. Uh, he is very well rehearsed and a polished quarterback. I'll say this. If you're going to beat a team like Georgia, Alabama, or the state Clemson, you're going to have to have great quarterback play. They're going to have to be able to extend plays, and they're going to have to be able to make throws into tight windows. I think Jake Bentley can do that. We'll see Saturday if Georgia can pressure him enough. I went back and watched the game last night from last year, and there was times where he got a little rattled. There were times where he made some big league throws. He's going to have to use the momentum of this home field advantage. He's got Rico Dattle there. They're going to have to be able to run the ball. Brian McClendon wants to be fast-paced. To do that, you've got to move the chains. It's going to be 95 degrees, which means it's going to be 195 on that turf in Columbia, which might be the hottest place on the earth if you've never been. For whatever reason, that place is scorching. So depth can Bentley keep the offense on the field, put pressure on George, and make those throws in those tight windows on Saturday. I think Jake Bentley plays well. Will he play well enough to win? I don't know. I've picked Georgia. I'm going to stay with that. But I think Georgia fans are underestimating how good Jake Bentley can be. So 
Rusty, going a little more abstract here. We were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, um, you know, just sort of about the message boards and sort of the <laughs> the fan interaction. And, and I like, where do you think this rivalry is? And, and like, is, is South Carolina viewed by Georgia and, and people in the Georgia community and circle and as sort of their primary combatant or, or, or top contender for the SEC East right now? Or like, what's, where, where do you think we are in the evolution of just sort of the Georgia-South Carolina matchup, rivalry, whatever you want to call it? You know, I mean, and I'll just speak from the Georgia fans that I know. I mean, they, I mean, you look at the series history, and Georgia has dominated this game. Now, the last 10 or 12 years, South Carolina has won their share. So Georgia fans see this as this is a team we better beat. We should beat. We should never lose to them. We should handle business. Now, the, the, I would say the – more this paying more attention understand this is a very very tough environment and i've said this the entire summer the loser of this game is two games back in the east and that is massive and in reality you need help to get to atlanta if you lose this game so if georgia loses this game they're going to need south carolina to lose two somewhere along the line if georgia runs the table same thing with South Carolina. So I think this. I think South Carolina is clearly the best team in the East right now to challenge Georgia. They got them at home. They got them early in the season. For, for what I know, everybody's pretty much healthy. So I mean, this is a massive, massive game. I think Georgia fans are paying more attention to this game than they were probably all summer because the message on the Georgia board pretty clear all summer. We're going over there and we're going to run them out of that building. Now I'm starting to see, hey, let's get out of there with a win. Let's 10, 12 points, you know, everybody healthy and move on to the next round. So I think the, the I would say the knowledgeable Georgia fan understands there's been several Georgia teams go into Columbia with a better roster and not win. I'm not trying to say I'm picking South Carolina. I'm just saying it will not shock me if this is a four-quarter all the way to the end game. Will Muschamp knows Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart knows Will Muschamp. Val McClendon knows this Georgia roster. There's a lot of things uh, that are different variables playing into this game, but I think it's going to be an SEC all-out four-quarter battle. I and that's a, a. I'm glad you mentioned that because in the in the big picture of the rivalry, and I I like the way that you were able to isolate this because. Certainly younger South Carolina fans probably imagine Georgia as more of an even rival than one who ones who have seen uh, decades upon decades of this battle. But I, I like to draw a little line and I hope we get a bunch of ma- meetings. But the, the the Kirby Smart Will Muschamp angle to this division rivalry is so much fun for me to watch and to dig into. Like where where are you given the check mark on the coaching advantage between these two? Well, you know, here's the here's the question I have. Brian McClendon, um, who is a very respected recruiter, who's a very, very great person, a Georgia alumni, I'll say this. The questions are on him this week. How will he attack Georgia? I think Georgia keeping their staff intact for the most part lost Kevin Sherrod to, uh, to Tennessee, but the rest of the guys, I believe, are, are there. Mel Tucker, they're well rehearsed in what they want to do. Now, the question mark is Brian McClendon. 
So what will Will Muschamp say, listen, this is what I want you to do, Brian, or is it Brian to say, look, Coach, this is how we're going to attack them and we're going this way. So I do think the two minds, and Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp, are very, very close. I don't think people realize they probably talk every day year-round. They are extremely close. So they know each other's mood, probably what they're going to do to attack each other in certain sorts of situations. The unknown factor is how is Brian McClendon, who doesn't have a big body of work, I'm certain he didn't show everything last week against Coastal Carolina, what will he do to try to attack the Georgia offense this week, and what will a game plan from Will Muschamp and their staff try to do against Georgia? Big question mark to me. Uh. So sorry, sorry, Chip. I was uh, a little. I thought I, that was my bad there. Um, so what's I put what's, you to sleep? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was counting on Chip's follow up there. Uh, so what's the uh, what, what's what's your final call here then? What um what, what's I mean you you like Georgia to win? Um, what what's your final call? You know, I think somebody that we don't talk about enough, and anybody that watches college football, this guy has been money for whatever reason, and, you know, he is bought into his persona, but I think that, that Rodrigo hot rod Blankenship is going <laughs> to be the difference for Georgia. You know, you look at that guy and, and just, you know, he, Barton, I've seen you make tweets about, you know, he's that guy that comes into the YMCA with elbow pads on and rec specs, and next thing you know, he's dropped 20 on you in a game of 21. You're like, you know, what just happened? Um, this guy's an athlete. Uh, he's strong. He's big in person. Uh, doesn't care. Obviously, he's going. He's bought into his rec specs, and that's him. But I, for whatever, he has been money, and I think he's going to be a weapon for Georgia. It would not surprise me if he doesn't put Georgia ahead late in the fourth quarter or make some big kicks in this game to the difference. I'm going to take. I'm going to take Georgia 31 to uh, 27. Ooh. Nice. He is Rusty Mansell. You can follow him on Twitter at Mansell247. Be sure to go on over to Dogs247. Sign up for an account. If you're a Georgia fan and, and you don't have a subscription right now, you're doing it wrong. Rusty, thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Around the world, around the world. And now we land in Pac-12 country with Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Network and the Life Without Limits podcast. Uh, Yogi, this is so much fun in the Pac-12 schedule because when we have the USC-Stanford game, obviously they played in the Pac-12 championship a year ago. We get it early in the schedule. You know, Stanford's always a player in the north. USC is a player in the south. You know, How, how have you looked at this rivalry uh, between these two programs over the course of the last say, five, six, seven years in terms of how it determines the way the rest of the Pac-12 title race plays out. Yeah, it's a great call. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful rivalry. If you're really like a college football fan, right? Because you talk to players and I get the rivalry. And I learned this when I moved to L.A. Um, you know, I thought SC's bigger, biggest rival would be Notre Dame because that's what I grew up watching. You know, and the players get way more excited to play UCLA. Right. And, and I sort of learned that in college, like it's really about the, the team where, you know, the most players. Um, so, so I get that, but I think, so, so my point is for players, it's kind of like a cross town for fans, there's nostalgia, but for college football nerds like us and the Pac-12 conference specifically, this has become the rivalry and you can go back to 2007. I remember being on the staff when we lost to Stanford in the upset or the, what's your deal game when uh, you know, Stanford <laughs> just went off at the Coliseum. And then the last couple of years, you know, Stanford's won the Pac-12, obviously, multiple times. Uh, they beat SC three of the last four times at home. 
And then SC beat them twice last year to win uh, the Pac-12 conference. So I, I think this rivalry is the most meaningful matchup for this conference over the last decade or so. So heading into this this game, and, and really probably heading into this season, I'm just curious because you 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 know you took a tour around preseason camps, and I was following your Twitter account and and, and seeing some of your updates, and so you had probably a little better feel than most people because uh, you're kind of the guy in the Pac-12 right now, and 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 I'm curious heading into this season, what were your expectations? Maybe first with USC uh, because there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of variance with this USC roster, and there's some young guys, and, and obviously a true freshman quarterback. So what were your expectations for this team coming into the year, and, and were they changed, altered, um, influenced by, by what you saw in week one against UNLV? Yeah, great question, man. Um, I, I think with SC, the first thing I saw in training camp, and I remember uh, talking to Tim Teslone, who's you know their SID, who's entering his 40th season, which is, you know, amazing is he's in the hall of fame for a reason um and in, in his craft and i said doesn't it feel like it used to you know when, when i was here in terms of competitive depth and we had this conversation during practice one day and, and that was my first takeaway and, and i went back the next day to like feel it again to make sure like i wasn't just nostalgic for the game and, and that's my that was my first thought about this team and i think for the first time since p carroll was there um and the first time since the sanctions They've got real competitive depth, and by that I mean you don't you don't just expect to play. You don't just have a job because you're just the better guy. You have the job because you've earned it, and people are competing at every position. And even losing two safeties, uh, or you know, not sure what the status of Bubba Bolden is, but they've got depth there now, right? They didn't have that last year. They didn't have that the year before that at every position, and I think they have that now. So that was my my stance coming in. Uh, coming in to call week one, I called it on the Pac-12 Networks last week against UNLV. You knew they were in a, at least I thought they were an elite defense. I still believe that. I think they've got NFL players on their defense. I think they have depth on the defense. Um, and when you look at the numbers, if you don't watch the game, you'd be like, wow, you're crazy, man. They gave up 300 yards like uh, on the ground. There's, there's no way this is a championship-style defense. But, but I think they are. I think you, you take away two plays last week, which were busts, which everybody kind of has, I believe, in week one and week two. Um, they've got the tools to be an elite defense. And on offense, they're special everywhere, I believe, um, in terms of next-level players, other than running back where they play by committee, and they might develop into that. But Stephen Carr is that when he's healthy. JT Daniels will be that when he evolves. So if they can run the ball and play defense, they got a great chance to win the Pac-12 South. So let's just stay on, on USC then. And so – the, the obviously the other big question is is the quarterback position and, and for for me when I was watching the USC game uh, or the UNLV game um, and I want to get your take on it but like what, what I saw was all right it was kind of sloppy in the first half um, there were some missed throws there were some sort of um, uh, assignment mistakes or sort of mental errors here and there from from JT Daniels but I like that USC just sort of kept on letting him throw and just sort of kept on feeding him. And, and it felt by the end of the game, he started getting in a rhythm. I've got really high expectations for JT Daniels. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of what have you seen in, in, in Elite 11. Um, what did you see from him and what do you think he's capable of this year at center, under center for USC? I think his ceiling is as high as anybody who's, you know, entered college as a freshman and started. 
Yeah. You know, you, we did a thing last night on the Pac-12, and I remember the day Matt Barkley was named the starter, and and when he came in, he was probably as ready as any of these guys that had started as freshmen to to really lead a team. You know, you look at Jared Goff. You know, he was 175 pounds and won an 11 season. Jake Browning uh, was just probably the guy that fit the best at that era for Chris Peterson when they got going. You look at Josh Rosen. He was he was elite. Uh, when he came in, you know, you know, he'd be able to do some special things. So I guess I put him in that category. And then Jalen Hurts and two, or at least Jalen Hurts and uh, Jake Fromm, you know, they're different beasts because I think a hey, Jalen, the surrounding cast was different. And then for Jake, same deal. So I say that because I think JT is going to be asked to do a lot. Um, yeah. And clearly he was in the first game of the season. When you see, when you saw, I think he threw 23 times in the first half and he just eventually settled in, man. And that to yeah. me is why, um, I like him. And then when I went back and studied him, I got this stat that I think you guys will totally dig. Uh, we call it pace, which is plays after critical errors. And we talked about it, Bart, you know, at the elite 11 every summer. So I work with PSF college, pro football focused college. And we created an algorithm to evaluate that stat at that position. And for JT, he didn't have a negatively throw or negatively graded throw after a really bad one to end the second quarter. I mean, think about that for a second. For a team that was playing a ton of press coverage, uh, you know, a bunch of different looks they were giving him, to not have a negative graded throw in the second half of the first game of what should be your senior year of high school at the Coliseum, to me, is pretty impressive. So yeah. he's going to have his moments where he'll look like a rookie and a frosh, but uh, overall, um, he's a really talented young man, clearly. Looking at Stanford, uh, one of the things that – I've, I've thought was interesting is you you do have this level of consistency you know four division titles in the last six years and at the same time this is uh, a place where other schools are constantly coming to try and get David Shaw's assistant coaches how do you think Shaw has been able to maintain that consistency even with all that turnover on the staff well I'm a believer in head coaches and, and I've been proven wrong before on this but I really think that head coaches you want them to be an expert in something you know, you got you got areas where that's not the case, right? Like Minnesota, you know, their head coach wasn't a coordinator. I think Mac Brown was a special teams coordinator. Uh, Clemson, but, but I believe in this in this era of successful head coaches, you want to have an expertise on one side of the ball that's really elite, right? Uh, and David Shaw has that. So I think number one, the coaches that go there realize how special of a place it is. You know, look at Mike Bloomberg; he had so many opportunities to leave, and he stuck around for a long time. And a lot of it is being there. David Shaw's such a great guy to work for. When you work there, the way that they have it now, it wasn't this way, I believe, with Walt Harris um, prior to Jim Harbaugh. Coaches live on campus now for the most part. You know, so it's just a different lifestyle. I mean, you're riding your bike to work. Man, It's really cool, and I think the profession's shifting a little bit in terms of people trying to have some semblance of balance in their life. And to work there and have your family around a place like Stanford is way different than having to drive 30 minutes through traffic to work or being in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's, it's a great place and it's a great job. And I think he's kept him there because when you leave, you usually launch out of there. So what do you think is going to be the offensive identity of this 2018 Stanford team? Because we've got Bryce Love, you, just an absolutely unique talent uh, in every sense of the word. J.J. Arcega-Whiteside is uh, another one at wide receiver. And as, as we're sort of – uh, watching the way that the the Stanford offense has evolved, he has certainly uh, been willing to to bend it to his personnel. Is this a is this a group that you believe is one of the elite offensive groups in the Pac-12? Yeah, I do. I think KJ Costello and I think 
you guys would probably agree, not only because the last game, but you followed him, you know, in recruiting coming up. Um, he's a star. I mean, think about this hypothetical. If you said three-plus-year starter at Stanford at quarterback equals blank, you're, you're going to say, like, top first-round draft pick, right? Sure. Was Andrew Luck. Or you're going to say winning his quarterback in the history of the program, which is Kevin Hogan. You look at this guy, he's a blend of those two. You know, he's got elite skills as a passer, um, and he's got this moxie and this aura about him that's, that's probably different than anyone that David Shaw has had. So I think he's going to thrive there, and teams are going to do what they did a week ago against Bryce Love. Every team and every coach I've ever talked to says we need to stop the run, regardless of how elite the quarterback is. And we can do that and make them one-dimensional. Even if it's Washington State who wants to throw it a lot, we'll give ourselves a chance when the ball's in the air and it's a 50-50 ball. We think we got an opportunity to beat you. Uh, and, and I agree with that. So I think teams are going to put eight in the box um, and try to stop Bryce Love and – See how their guys match up down the middle of the field of safety at the outside backer position against Caden Smith and the litany of tight ends that they have. And same thing on the outside. So what you're going to have this weekend is Iman Marshall versus J.J. Ortega-Whiteside. I yeah. jump balls. We'll see what happens. You know, I, I don't know which way it's going to go, but I, I do believe that's what teams are going to do. So offensively, you'll see a team do things that you haven't seen in a while. I think you'll see some run-pass option. You'll see some zone read like you've seen the last couple of years. And, of course, you'll see him with the power run game. So let's project it out to, to the matchup this weekend and, and how they compare. You touched on it a little bit there. I mean, I, 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 that's, a, that's a fascinating matchup. You kind of beat me, too. I'm, I'm interested in seeing, you know, Biggie Marshall against Arcega Whiteside. But I, I'm also kind of like the area I think that I'm – the unit I don't have a good firm grip on is maybe on the other side of the ball for Stanford. You know, is this a Stanford-level defense that we've seen in the past? Um I'm curious if where that where you think the critical factors are in this matchup that you that you're anxious to kind of keep an eye on that you'll be eyeballing and and maybe just sort of what you think about the Stanford defense your expectations there as well. Yeah, it's a great question because you know the defensive line. I think every defensive line this this week in the Pac-12 at least, um, you know, UW at times looked really elite with Greg Gaines um, and Benning Potai, but overall, I thought the majority of defensive line struggled. And you could say that probably around the country. I mean, Utah was dominant, but they played, you know, they played Weaver State. Um, so I say that because I, I was surprised uh, on the Stanford defensive front. You know, it wasn't what you're used to seeing as you go back and watch that film a ton. But what I do like about them is they're going to move. You know, they're going to shift. They're going to stem. They're going to give JT Daniels different looks where he doesn't get comfortable. And just all of a sudden it's him to number eight, you know, which happens to be a guy he's been throwing to since junior high and I'm under Ross St. Brown. So I don't think they're going to allow him specifically on third downs to go find him. So it'll be fun to watch the matchups on the outside with the corners uh, against Michael Pittman Jr., against Tyler Voss, who did not play well, in my opinion, in week one, or at least up to the standard we saw in the Pac-12 title game. You know, they had a couple drops, they didn't make some plays, and those guys are all working to get on the same page. So I, I think it's not what it was. They don't have Solomon Thomas or Harrison Phillips, but they're going to – they're, they're going to be a team that by the end of the season will be one of the top-run defenses in the Pac-12. The, the challenge, as we all know, because we're talking about it, is they got SC, then they go to Oregon in two weeks, then they go to Notre Dame, and then they got Utah. And teams are going to run the football. So they're going to have to grow up fast, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing you know how that evolution is. If they can get through those games, get to a bye week with some of those wins, I mean, look out. It's a top-five team in the country. 
We've been having some fun this week, Yogi. Uh, you know, A, of course, overreacting to week one, because what's more fun than a, a big overreaction? <laughs> uh, but also just, just revisiting some of our preseason predictions and, and putting them to the test, seeing whether or not we would we would change those. And so, you know, I'll ask you, uh, maybe who who'd you have coming out of the north and south going into the year, and has there been anything through one week of play that has made you change uh, your perspective on that? I got I had Utah and Utah, Utah and UW, and no, I, I wouldn't change that. Uh, I was I, I thought the passing game at Utah on Thursday night would have a little bit more rhythm. Yeah, um, but when you look at what they did overall. Um, it was still impressive in terms of running the ball with Zach Moss. I love their defense. I think it, they don't have the depth that Washington has in the secondary, but I think they're just as good at every position. Um, both corners, Julian Blackman and Jalen Johnson. I think they're NFL players, both safeties, you know, they're different styles than Taylor Rapp and Jojo McIntosh, but Corian Ballard um, and company, they're, they're gifted players. So I, I still like them on the defense side and who they have at home. The, the tough part is going to be in this conference. You know, let's just take Utah, for instance. They play UW, they play SC, and they play Stanford. SC plays Stanford, and they go to Utah. So, you know, you can there. There's a world where Utah beats SC, but has two conference losses, and SC only has one loss all season long. And it could be to Utah, and SC still wins the Pac-12 South. You know, so that to me is like the crossover games. To me, are like a, a hidden storyline that they won't get talked about till week ten but I think they're worth noting as the season gets going. What about uh, out of the North? You saw, I mean, there, there's not going to be uh, a better test for the Huskies, you know, and now we've got, of course, the news that Trey Adams out for uh, an undetermined amount of time. It, was there anything, did, did you look at that result as a more Auburn or more Washington um, as you're walking away from it? I think it's both. I mean, they've they played uh, – play probably the most advanced quarterback other than Justin Herbert they're going to see all season long. You know, I think Jared Siddham's the top three quarterback drafted in the spring. Uh, he's a star. You know, you look at the first drive and the throw he makes and how he climbs the pocket, and you're just like, dude, kind of breaks your heart. But I think when you look at that game, and that's why I'm not worried about UW nationally or, or specifically to the Pac-12 nationally. Like, it's kind of the narrative beforehand, right? If UW loses, conference is done. Right. That ain't the narrative that's been talked about all week because of the way they played. I mean, UW, if you think about it, they had two uh, punts where they didn't cover well. They had some, you know, questionable calls, uh, they said, and we would all probably say in the red zone. Um, and they had a pick they wish they had called back. That was a touchdown. Uh, they had a bad interception that usually they don't have. I mean, what, what's my point? My point is that they hurt themselves throughout the game. I mean, it's not like they got rolled. They handled it physically. They ran the ball when they wanted to at times. They clearly threw the ball down the field. They're not a team. Let's say this. The narrative coming out of USC when they played Alabama and Ohio State is not at all the narrative coming out of UW playing Auburn. Agreed. You know, I don't think anyone in the country, whether you're in Tuscaloosa or you know in Auburn or in Columbus, Ohio, you're saying, oh, man, UW can't play. Can't wait to play them. I think you're saying, damn, you know, Auburn got lucky. And if they played a sharper team – like everybody will be in week three and four, who knows how this goes. And maybe it's at a neutral site one day versus in Atlanta. And maybe that changes it. Or maybe the targeting gets called, which I'm not even like, that's not even complaining. That's like a player safety thing that just blew my mind. The big 10 missed that one. 
but the, my point is there's a bunch of areas where UW could have won versus, man, they're lucky to just survive the game. Were you surprised by either of the Arizona schools' results in week one or, or what the product they put on the field was? Uh, I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised Arizona lost. Um, but again, I didn't know what BYU would be on offense. Yeah. You know, a new offensive coordinator takes over and, you know, they had their way, you know, they ran the ball when they wanted to two backs under center and the old school and perfect for Tanner Mangum skill set. And they, they hurt Arizona defensively. You know, they kind of dictated terms throughout that game. I think on the flip side, the storyline is like, Oh my God, Khalil Tate didn't run the ball like he should. I don't know. I, I think that's tough. I mean, there's so much, so much excitement for Kevin Sumlin and Omazoni and saying, well, Khalil Tate's going to throw the ball down the field. And everybody wanted that. And I thought Khalil Tate looked the most like a quarterback he's ever looked at his entire life. Now, he wasn't accurate past 20 yards. I didn't complete a ball. I think they were 0 for 10. But intermediate game, which you guys know, that's where the game is played. Basically played from 0 to 12 yards in the passing game. I mean, you look at the NFL or college, 65% of completions last year in both, both leagues, both levels were 60 or, or 10 yards or less. He's there. He's elite. You know, he's special there. So I think it's settling in and they struggle on the O-line, they struggle on the D-line. So that, that was disappointing. Um, and they need to bounce back because they, they could lose this game at Houston in week two. It's not like they're rolling in to an easy non-conference so, so Yogi- game. Are you saying, like, are you, because Chip and I were, like, bemoaning this new Khalil Tate that is just a drop-back passer. Like, we were, I, I was, I was like, where, like, like the the most dangerous thing about him is his ability with his legs. It sounds like you were, you didn't have that, rea- that wasn't your reaction? You, I mean, what was, what was your no. takeaway? Then? You're, you, so you were pleased, like, you were okay with what you saw in terms of the product of the quarterback position. I mean, look, do I think they're going to have more QB design runs this week? A hundred percent. I mean, I think we could read between the lines, even at Kevin Summons press conference. Uh, but, but the job of a coach I get is to win, but it's also to develop your yeah. player. Right. I mean, if, if you just wanted a running system for the quarterback, they would have hired somebody who just did that, you know, and, and they'll, they'll do elements of it. They're still figuring this team out, but, I thought he actually looked like a quarterback, guys. Like, you saw him drop on rhythm. You never saw that last year. You saw him hitch and make a completion for a touchdown. You never saw that last year. It was zone read, flat-footed, making plays. Because that was that system, that downhill. was basically the triple option uh, in the throw game. So, a different style of play. I think it's going to benefit him. Um, and I think this team, once they figure out what they can and can't do with their offensive line, they had a player suspended due to the NCAA. Uh, I think they had another one injured. So there's a lot of elements here with new coaches outside of just the excitement. I mean, they're learning about their teams as well. I mean, from Chip Kelly to Herm Edwards to Kevin Sumlin, I'm sure if you asked all of them, they'd say, give us an FCS opponent. Just learn who the hell our team is in the first two weeks of the season because you can't really tell in, what, two and a half scrimmages in training camp. So I actually didn't have a problem with it. Now, it's gonna. T- I don't think they're a playoff team. Uh, and they'll still have a chance to, to win their conference if they get going because they get you know, teams like SC at home. But uh, nah, I, I got no problem when a player develops at a position where he wants to develop. He is Yogi Roth. You can follow him on Twitter at Yogi Roth. You can listen to him on the Life Without Limits podcast. You can see and hear him, what do we say, Washington, North Dakota for the call this weekend? Yeah, baby. 
Pac-12 Network. Check them out. Yogi, This is you've been so gracious with your time. Thank you very much for joining us here on the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. Okay, later.